Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about systems and games that work against the players uh, without the players necessarily having uh, much to say about it. Now, obviously, this lends itself uh, to co-op games, but we're going to get into uh, the artificial intelligence systems in, in non-co-ops as well. And today, uh, really glad to have back on the pod- podcast Mr. Richard Launius. Thanks for being back on the show, Richard. Glad to be back. Thank you. So, Richard, you have a ton of experience with you know different artificial inche- intelligence systems. You, you've got uh, you know Defenders of the Realm, Defenders of the Last Stand, Arkham Horror, even Run Fighter Die. I was thinking about this earlier. Run Fighter Die has a really cool artificial intelligence system, and it's it's not necessarily a co-op. And so, I'm really excited to kind of hear your viewpoints and, and just your thoughts on how to create a system that works well, that's fun to play, and doesn't just destroy the players every single time. So, really excited to. Uh, to kind of hear your your thoughts on this, but but give me some some background, give me some bio, because you you've been making AI systems for a while. I remember in our last episode, you talked about Arkham Horror, the original way back when was maybe the original co op game, so you had to have an AI system for that for it to work well. So just kind of give me some background in in your uh, your work with AI systems and why you in, enjoyed working with those so much. All right, it's just fun because I like to make adventure games. I call them. Uh, in which players get to to you know become heroes. That's kind of the goal of what I like to do. I just enjoy that whole uh, I guess uh, imagine imaginary world. And in that, I've always been one who who believes that in order to create those worlds, uh, you can't really have a player you know control the world. I know there's you know many one one against many players out there, and that works with a lot of games. But I always prefer the uh, the players to all be somehow. Uh, on the same side, or at least in the world where they don't have control of that world. So, you know, uh, I've been doing this. Yeah, you can go all the way back to the original Arkham Horror in the, the 1980s, came out in 1987. Uh, and, uh, you know, and really uh, even some games I made as a teenager that, you know, never published anywhere. We just played ourselves. Before that, I think one of the first what I would call adventure games I made was a James Bond game where you had several different James Bond villains and you're going around, you know, the board and having all these different encounters and car chases and ski chases and, you know, finding clues. And ultimately you would be able to corner which was the main villain that you're going after and go after them. And everything was driven by cards as far as the, the villains were concerned. So uh, I've been doing this for a long time and uh, I, I really enjoy doing it. Absolutely. Now, like you said, there are a lot of one versus all games out there. You know, Descent is one. Conan that just came out not too long ago is a, is a pretty good one. But have have you ever tried the one versus many uh, concept? Well, I've, I, you know, I certainly I've, I, I did it when I did some of the uh, expansions for, to Mansions of Madness. So uh, I certainly have have been involved in that. And and you know, to be honest with you, it's it's a lot easier to do because all you have to do is is give them the tools. And uh, then you're relying upon uh, a person to 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 carry out that particular role. And, you know, my you know, I'm not a big fan of one against many for for a simple reason uh, that the one against many. And, and I feel the same way about, you know, the trader mechanic, too. Not not that those aren't good mechanics, uh, but they're they're they, they rely upon a player to play them well. OK. 
And so you, you don't know what the experience of all the players are going to be. It's going to be based pretty much about how well that particular player plays. You know, if they're the kind of player that, you know, is, you know, um, uh, sneaky and cunning and, and also wants to, to have a balanced story up here, then it can be a really good experience for the players. If they're someone who just wants to crush the other players, then it's usually a good experience for that particular person that played the one against the many. Uh, maybe not as good for, for the others. It really just depends on the game group. But uh, from my perspective, when I'm approaching a game, I like to say, okay, what is this world that I'm making and how do I want it to operate? And that's how I go about building the, the artificial intelligence for it is, is, okay, I want it to do these things. Here's the feeling that I want the players to have over the course of the game. Uh, and, you know, and I want, I want that to evolve and, and, and then I create, you know, uh, a deck of cards or whatever the case may be that will control the actions for, for the, the board itself. I always tell people, you can't cheat Arkham Horror. It'll get up off the floor and beat you at any, <laughs> any given time. Absolutely. So, you know, when people say, I'm not sure I played Arkham Horror, right? I'm saying, well, that's okay. Cause Arkham Horror doesn't care. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll play you the same way every time, whether you play it right or not. So however you're playing, it's right for you. Uh, and that's kind of the approach that I take is to try to to give life to the game board within the world that it exists. And I think that's probably the, the most important thing. I see a lot of, uh, uh, I, I guess I would say, younger designers coming along. And uh, they use a lot of different mechanics, uh, probably more mechanically skilled than I am in a lot of ways. But a lot of times what they do with the AI is just put modifiers in that make the game harder to play. And I think it's got to be much more than that. Uh, that, that you look at. You really need to give it a personality, uh, characteristics, make it feel like there's actually, you know, some, you're actually going up against an entity that, uh, uh, that you're trying to defeat. Yeah, it's a great point. And you bring up a really good point in that, you know, it is easier to have a one versus all system because you're, you're going to rely on the player to make good decisions. You don't have to worry about random things coming out that are just dumb. And it doesn't make sense because the player is more in, in control. But at the same time, you, you kind of run into some disadvantages on, on that as well. But let's talk about kind of how you begin. Like when you're, when you're working on a game and you're going to begin creating this AI system, you just talked about the bigger picture of the experience you're trying to create, which is awesome. But on a more kind of practical level, where do you begin? Do you begin saying, okay, let's try this, let's try that, and just kind of see what works? Or do you have an idea in mind from the beginning of, of how the system is going to work? Well, usually, usually in the course of any design will change as you're, as you're doing the design. I mean, uh, maybe there are designers out there that are so good that they know exactly what it needs to be and, and can carry that out. I don't work that way with me. It's more of an art than a science. So what I know is that I want, I want to create this experience, okay? I want to create this Lovecraftian world, or I want to create this fantasy world, or I want to create this, you know, whatever world I'm trying to create. And I want the players to, to feel that they're in this world and that it's, it's, it's a real world. So uh, when I have the game board do things, I, I, I start thinking, okay, how am I going to make the game board perform to create this story for the for the players to unravel these challenges that they that they need to do and uh, you know and and how does it how is it going to ratchet up the pressure how is it going to uh, give them you know both challenges but opportunities at the same time and they're going to have choices so they're not just required to do you know step A step B step C I, I, I really am not a huge fan of you know, of, of following that particular kind of format. I, 
you know, I, I prefer a much more open open world that the players can do a number of different things in. So, uh, so my approach usually is to think about it in those terms uh, and say, okay, so so what needs to happen? And you know, so for example, in Arkham Horror, okay, we need a Mythos card, and it needs to tell us what happens. You know, clues clues appear, uh, monsters. You know, a gate opens up, monsters come out of it, monsters move. You know, some kind of event, uh, hopefully with some kind of scary story, keeps the mood going, and so on and so forth. So you kind of think in those terms, you know, and then you know, we we uh, we put together to where whatever ancient one you had has this over overarching piece that that goes that goes into play, and you know. Uh, Corey and the team took that, you know, a little bit further with Elder Chor because they, they, they really honed all the story around the 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 ancient ones. So no longer you just pick up clues; you had to actually resolve clues that were associated with the ancient one, and so on and so forth. So just you know, diving deeper into the story, and I really think for me, it's all about that. The the artificial intelligence really is not just a mechanic to drive the game. It needs to be something that that you know tells the story. And uh, you know there are a lot of I think you know really good games out there, and they they a lot of them have uh, thematics that uh, overlap them, and some of those thematics are are core to the game. But I think a lot of times they also miss in in telling the story. You know, um, Pandemic, for example. I think that's a I think that's a great puzzle game. Uh, you know, this disease is popping up, and you're going around and and you're putting it down. But there's no story that goes with that really. It's just the activity of going around and putting it down. Um, and and I think that there was opportunity there to add a lot more story in the process. Yeah, that's a great point of having just as simple as a flavor text on a card that kind of gives you just a brief little paragraph about, hey, this happened and then the outbreak moved. And then, I mean, that's that's really all you would need to begin to kind of add some some more theme into that kind of a game. Exactly. Just just a little thematics, a little flavor text, you know, uh, maybe a few more events that uh the players have to deal with, and I've not played all the expansions, so I don't know. But once again, I mean, a lot of people just love the fact that they can sit down and play that game in like 30 minutes, and it, you know, it, to them it meets all the thematics. So uh, I'm, I'm, it, it's obviously an extremely popular and very successful game, and I think it's a, a great game. Okay, but I also think that they could have expanded that artificial intelligence just a little bit more. And made it even more of an experience. No, you make a great point. And you have to also think about the popularity of Pandemic Legacy and how really all they did to that game was add in a story. They changed, you know, one or two mechanics here and there, added one or two rules here and there, but really it was just this bigger picture story, and now it's the most popular game on Board Game Geek. So I think you're exactly. you're, you're right on point with what you're saying. Exactly. I, you know, I, and I think and I think that's the kind of stuff that you uh, you know, want to think about when you're building your AI. So you know, my advice is you know think about the situation that you're in, and and, and you're not always going to be right. I mean, uh, you know, I prefer once again very loose, broad um, uh, game. Uh, in other words, the players can do a lot of different things. Uh, the AI is broad reaching, and and you know, some people might even say that it rambles, uh, but it, but it, you know, it creates it creates experiences. It creates memorable things that happen in games, and somehow they, they, uh, uh, you know, people tend to remember them. I, I think I told you last time that, you know, I, I often I get people come up to me and they'll tell me they'll start describing playing playing a game of Arkham Horror or Defenders of the Realm or something else uh, that they played five, six, seven, ten years ago with great detail and telling the story just as if it's something that really happened. Okay, 
uh, which is what I love because that you know that's what I really want people to get out of it is some kind of experience in the game, and uh, you know so I try to to reach those broad reaching, uh, you know and and so I want my fantasy world to feel like a fantasy world. I want I want the 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 different fantasy races to act like those fantasy races. Um, you know, Alien Uprising. I, I I really wanted to create this tension of if you were crashed on a planet and being attacked and had to rebuild your ship, what would that be like? Now, I think, you know, on that one, in the end, uh, you know, that original design was, was I, I would call, a lot looser. It got tightened up by the publisher. I know they used a mathematician from University of Colorado and really tightened it up. And I think they made that game too tough for a lot of players now because you can't make many wrong moves. Uh, you know, but I understand why they did it to some extent, but then I look at the original and say, you know, it didn't bother me that I was swinging. I got a big win or I got creamed in this one. You know, I also had a lot of close ones. Now it's close all the time, but a couple of wrong moves and you lose, and that's almost too much pressure for a lot of people. So, you know, you kind of got to think about, okay, how much pressure do I want? What's going to, you know, that needs to be figured into the situation. How does that fit into to here? You know, is are you going to add any humor at all? I mean, Defenders of Last Stand, I think, has you know, a lot of humor in the, in, in some of the storylines as well, because it's, you know, post-apocalyptic and, uh, you know, you can, you can take and, and move into the future and think about a few things that would be funny if they were looking back and really didn't know what Skittles was, but they call, you know, radioactive rain, Skittle rain, you know, right. uh, the, the old guy does. So you can, you, you can think about things like that and, 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 and try to make things become a real world as much as possible. And that's kind of how I, I focus it. Yeah, you know, one of the things you just mentioned was experience. Now, people come up and they tell you these stories. Well, one of the main things that, that causes those stories is tension. It's drama. So how do you create a system that, that really, you know, ratchets up the tension, ratchets up the drama? For instance, I'm, I'm working on a co-op game right now where one thing I've run into in playtesting is there's not enough tension, and so the players don't really feel like they have to go do anything, and so they kind of wander around for a while, and the game kind of slows way down. So what are, what are some ways that you, can, that you can add tension into the game? I think what you have to do is look at it, you know, a design where you want the tension to ratchet up. You have to look at it in terms of if this were a play, there would be multiple acts, okay? And Act 1 is kind of the introduction. You get to know everybody. Act 2 is where you figure out what's going on and what needs to be done. And Act 3 is where the pressure's on. You've got to get something done. So, you know, you would want to focus your artificial intelligence at driving those people through the acts, okay? Uh, maybe the pressure is a little lesser in the beginning, but, but it picks up, and then it becomes very much, okay, we don't have much choice. we got to get this done now, okay? Uh, to where uh, the 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 you know whether whether it's crises that are being caused, uh, whether it's a clock that's running out. I mean, a lot of game designers put clocks on their games. Sometimes the clocks are well hidden, and sometimes they're not. Uh, but you know, re regardless, you need something that that the players realize that you know we can't just go around and do this forever. Not not that there's anything wrong with having a game that just goes on and on and on if players like that kind of game. But, uh, you know, especially these days, people really want a playing time. They want to know that the game lasts a half an hour, an hour, uh, two hours. You know, whatever the case is, they want to know what that time is. And uh, you have to progress people through the game to where, you know, they just don't have forever. Now, a lot of games now, I, I, I'm seeing more and more games that are doing it based on, oh, if somebody dies, then, then you lose. 
I, you know, I, I, I get that because, you know, I, I did run fight or die where if somebody dies, the game ends, that person loses and, and, and you do scoring. Uh, but, I, but I really think it's better if it's focused on there's a story that's taking place here. How do we get through the story? Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, um, and, and it's just fun to do games like that. Uh, they recently announced uh, uh, Planet of the Apes that I did for IDW, and I think people are going to see that, you know, uh, it, I, I hopefully have taken everybody through a very interesting and fun experience of, of you know, the, the Planet of the Apes movie. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just you got the world there is very defined. So, you know, you have to go from, you know, you crashed on this planet to discovering that there's apes to discovering that, you know, apes are in control. And, and how do you escape from that and, and you know, ultimately discover the, the fate of mankind? So you, you think about that right at the very beginning, and that's going to drive your artificial intelligence. Yeah, another way I think you're kind of alluding to this is, is the way to create that tension is from that first act in how you set up the game. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of the games, a lot of your games, they have this kind of variable randomized setup uh, that creates that tension from the get go. It's like, Oh man, this is already, everything's already going wrong. We have to go ahead and start fixing this. But how do you really create a system that is, that works well enough in that moment to create tension, but doesn't just kill the players on the first turn? Well, I, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is trial and error. I mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've had people say, "Oh, we lost this game in like two turns," and a lot of times I'll think they must have done something wrong because yeah. I, I don't think you can lose it in two turns. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, basically, if if you're really going to use an AI in the game, yeah, and, and you're really going to allow the AI to to run a number of different ways. Then, then what's going to happen is players are going to constantly be facing situations that are going to be crisis type situations. Whether it happens right off the bat, you know, does it does it not happen until a few few until a little bit into it? Uh, you know, does it give you breathing room? I mean, that's going to be driven by the setup and then how the AI really operates. You know, most games that I would approach. Uh, depend, really, once again, depending on what the game situation is, is going to give you something you've got to deal with right at the very beginning. And if you don't deal with it then, uh, you might lose you know, very quickly. But that is something that they can, work, they can do, providing they simply work together to do it. And uh, so, I, so I think you want something. Uh, the focus really has to be that you want to challenge. And the other thing you've got to think about in AI is who's the game for? Who's playing the game? game? Once again, I've got I've got another game going to be coming out this summer called Saving Time, in which the players are agents from the future. They used to be historians, but now we've got an alien destroying our history, so they're having to go back and fix history, or the future will be wiped out. And they've got to ultimately collect enough information about this alien for the alien to be captured and, and stopped. And you know that's more of a uh, while while that game can be played by all kinds of gamers, that's a little bit more of a mainstream game. So, you know, uh, it doesn't ratchet up as high a level as some of my other co-ops. In other words, you've got a closer to 45 to 50 percent chance of winning that game, whereas you've got a 30 percent chance of winning Defenders of the, you know, Defenders of the Realm or, or Arkham Horror, maybe even only a 25 percent chance there if, it, if that was your first game of playing it. Uh, so, so I think, once again, you need to, if you're, if you're designing a game with an AI, you need to know who are the players going to be. 
Uh, are they going to want a game that's very difficult to win, uh, you know, and, and super challenging? Or are they going to want a game that's a little bit easier to win, and then they can put the more challenging aspects in, you know, afterwards? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I've read other designers talking about this very concept of the percentage of first-time play wins or the ratio. And some people think zero. They say, I don't want, I don't want people to win the game first time no matter what. Some people say 50%, you know, all these different ranges. But I think you make a very good point. Who's the audience? Who is this game for? Because if you make a mainstream game with 0% chance to win where the players come in the first time and they get crushed – well, they're probably not even going to play the game again. They're going to say, that's just way too hard. I don't like it. So you have to be very, very aware of the audience that you're making the game for. All right. And, I, and I, personally, I would never make a game that had 0%. If, if a game is in, the, the, in what I call the 30% range, that means the really, really strategic uh, gamers will pull that off you know, on their first one, maybe. Uh, but once again, they still need a few events to go their way. I, you know, I never leave everything in control of the, the gamers. So when people say, hey, there's an element of luck in my games, yeah, there is. I think there's an element of luck in life. So, you know, <laughs> it, the world's not controllable, okay? Right. Uh, my wife, she got caught in a uh, uh, hailstorm yesterday with hell the size of baseballs, and she's got a dimpled car all over the place. That's just plain old bad luck, okay? And you can't, you can't control the world out there. But you can mitigate the things that happen. Right. And uh, what I try to do is create that situation to where the players have the ability to, you know, uh, influence, whether it's dice rolls or whatever you're doing to resolve things, help each other, influence things, con you know, control things. But in the end, the world is not totally controllable. And if Arkham Horror wants to get off the mat and slap you down, it's going to get off the mat and slap you down. And you're going to go away from that probably with a story that Cthulhu is tough. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so let's let's talk about just your advice on testing. So you talk about trial and error. How do you test, like how do you specifically test these systems and see what works? Like what are you looking for during play tests? Okay, well the first thing I always do, if, I, if it's a co-op, I'll test it on myself first. I'll break out two, three, four characters, whatever, and I'll test, I'll, I'll basically test the, the AI. And, you know, and, and I'm looking for this, I'm looking, is this the kind of experience that I, I was expecting to come out of the game? And, uh, you know, if it is, uh, that's great. Uh, you know, it, that means I'm on track, and then all I have to do is is tweak the system, okay? Uh, is it too hard? Is it too easy? Is, but is it? But overall, is it creating the experience, okay? That's, that's, that's kind of the first piece of that. You know, if I get past that and it actually is working to some degree... Uh, then, then I bring in players and, and once I start watching the players, uh, there's, there's a number of things I'm looking for. I'm looking for, are they using all the actions I gave them? Uh, you know, it does the AI act differently with, you know, more players versus less players or whatever the case is. And, uh, you know, then I start making alterations to that. So, you know, if it, if it all of a sudden it's not working with two players, but it worked with four, I start trying to figure out, okay, what do I do to, to change that to where when there's two players, it, it, it provides the same experience. My goal is that it provides the same experience regardless of the number of players. And, uh, you know, that's just how – and, and then I usually continue to, to add story, you know, more pieces of the story. Okay, if this happens to be about fantasy, then I try to add, you know, more aspects of fantasy to it so, so that the world becomes more complete. Uh, you know, and, and that's just the, the approach I take and it goes through, you play it, you change it, you play it, you change it, you play it, you change it. 
you know, when I when I run into young designers who tell me, oh, you know, I just I designed this game, you know, last week and it's really about ready to go on Kickstarter. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's that, you know, if they can do that. That's impressive. I can't. I'm fast and I spend a lot of time working, but usually the playtesting aspect is going to run me, you know, uh, several weeks to several months to, to, to make the changes that are required to have a game that's ready to go out to the public. Right. You talk about difficulty. What are some ways you found that work really well in adjusting that difficulty, either making it harder or making it easier? Okay. Well, a lot of times it is, it depends on what, what your AI that's driving the game. Uh, but, but in most cases, if you're doing an adventure game, you're creating obstacles for the players to overcome. Whether those obstacles be, you know, monsters or whether those obstacles become, uh, you know, situations that, that uh, you know, if they're not resolved in a certain amount of time, uh, they cause something to happen. So basically what you want to do is you want things to be popping up on the board that the players are having to go take care of. If they don't go take care of them, then you want that, you want those to actually trigger and do it themselves without doing a lot of you know, bookkeeping, in-between turn keeping. I try to keep things to where, you know, uh, the AI is just the flip of a card. Um, you know, I, I, love, I love all kinds of adventure games, and uh, the ones that, uh, you know, frustrate me to some extent it, are the ones that I've got to roll dice on several charts, you know, in-between turns or whatever, because there's all this upkeep for, for the AI. Uh, you know, I really prefer to try to keep that to the flip of a card or the flip of a couple of cards or whatever the case may be. And those cards tell me all kinds of things. They tell me, you know, where the next problem is. They tell me what happens there. They tell me what kind of event might have taken place and so on and so forth. Um, you know, whether it's an ongoing event or whatever. But but I just do it by flipping a couple of cards. That keeps the game focused on the players versus I'm having to run the board, Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I think I think that's that's an essential part of what you've got to look at is is can I streamline my artificial intelligence down to where it doesn't require a lot of, of work on the part of the players? You know, and some of this is being done now by, uh, you know, uh, apps uh, that go along with games. And I think, you know, that's that's fantastic. Uh, you know, if you can do that, I'm not a big fa fan of timed apps, although I think they do uh, apply at times. In other words, we only have 30 seconds to do this or whatever the case is, uh, because that does create pressure, but it doesn't create the experience. And that's, you know, that that's one of the things that, that uh, you know, um, I, I think is different than my perspective. Uh, yeah, you can put an app or a timer down and you can create that tension, okay, but that doesn't create an experience. Players don't go away going, whoa, we were on a spaceship and this was happening and man, did we barely pull it out. They go away saying, you know, that timer seems too fast, you know, and that is not the same experience. Yeah. I think the timer can sometimes force players to be more concerned about the mechanics and what they need to accomplish in the game mechanic wise, as opposed to actually being involved or immersed in the story or the theme of the game. Yeah. It, you know, and, and it doesn't make a game a bad game. Don't get me wrong. It's just, it, it it's a different it's a different experience than you know just you know I, I I can I'm reading text the board's generating this this is happening and so on and so forth uh, you know whenever I play uh, what is it you know Eric Lang's XCOM 
I got to turn the timer off most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I not so much because I can't get the things done in the time, but I don't enjoy the process. Uh, so I just keep pausing it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And that gets back into what kind of player are you designing a game for? You know, a lot of a lot of the games I enjoy playing are ones where I can sit there, I can have fun, talk about whatever, go off on a tangent, come back to the game, where there's not this huge time-sensitive tension. The game has tension, the game has drama, but it's not uh, it's not created by the game kind of artificially. Exactly, and, and you know, and, and so I, and I enjoy the same thing. Because that helps you immerse in the story, I think, yeah. and it helps you immerse in the the idea of, you know, we we have time to talk about a couple of these things. Now, I, I, I'm not a fan of analysis paralysis type situations, but I am. Nor am I a fan of, you know, where the one guy takes control and tells everybody what to do, right. uh, which happens a lot with puzzle games. It also happens a lot with time games. Okay, yeah. you got to have somebody who's in control of things. Uh, you know. But I am in favor of providing people with more than one option and the ability to discuss those options. And I think that's I think that becomes valuable. Yeah, definitely. So you talked about bookkeeping there. You talked about having just one card tell you everything you need to know. Are there any other ways you found to just kind of mitigate the bookkeeping in a game? Because there's a lot of games that are really fun and awesome, but man, they slow way down when you get to the AI phase of the game because you're having to look at this check that and all that so what other ways have you found to kind of keep that on the on the simpler side well that's really the main thing i use i've I've not found a lot of i mean first of all don't include things that are unimportant uh you know you can want it to be too much you can want it to look at too much uh you can you can you know so ask yourself when the ai is performing is it, you know, is it doing the things I want it to do? It, it, are some of the things it's doing don't mean anything to the, to the players, especially if those things are taking time and, and, and requiring some kind of bookkeeping? Uh, you know, and, and once again, people can be as creative as they want to in terms of how a game works and the, and the mechanics of it. But in terms of, of what, the, what the AI does, the AI should create the situations, keep the story going, and be as brief as possible in terms of what players have to do to to maintain it. Right. All right, so let's talk about, you know, the co-op AI system versus a free-for-all games AI system. You've you you've created games with both, you know, Run Fighter Die like we were talking about earlier. So what are the things you have to keep in mind uh with those two very different uh styles of play? Well, the probably the biggest difference is when it's co-op, you don't have to worry about whether you're unbalancing the game. Uh, if it's not co-op, then, then you, you are simply looking at a situation where you could be introducing random elements into the game that's affecting one player more than another. You know, does that, is that okay? And as a rule, that's usually not okay. When you get into a competitive game where, you know, there are people who really want to win competitive games, more, some are more competitive than others, uh, and, and, you know, and everybody probably is a, a little competitive when they get in a competitive game, but the bottom line is you really don't want it to be a situation where the AI piled on one player uh, and helped another, or it helped one and didn't help anybody else. And that's the biggest issue you face with a competitive game is that the, the AI must evenly distribute the issues that they have to deal with. Right. Are there some, some ways that you found that, that work well for that? For instance, just you know just sending the same number yeah, of enemies? Or- yeah, Probably the easiest way that that works is if you've got a situation, let's just say, 
let's say there's enemies being generated and everybody's ninjas fighting the, the enemies, okay? Yeah. Uh, you can do it to where you, you have a value that says, okay, you know, uh, a value of, of five points of enemies is going to be generated against, you know, each player each turn. And so, you know, they come off of a deck and they get dealt to you and, you know, this is worth two and this is worth two. And now I got one worth one. One might be an event. The other two are enemies I've got to fight. Whatever the case is, the next guy gets a three and a, a two. That's fine. These all, they all average out. They're all facing different things that the AI has given them, but they're all valued equally in terms of how difficult they are to overcome. Uh, that, that, that would be how I would handle the situation in, in, in a multiplayer game. Yeah, and that really kind of goes into what I was just about to, to say, is you could run into just a lot of sameness if it's, okay, everyone has to fight two zombies. But when you do a system like you're talking about with the point system and all that, it's going to average out to be roughly the same, but you're not going to be uh, as bored with everybody fighting the same old, same old. Right, and, and, and in that you have the ability to put in story because you can put in events, and events can be rated as to one, two, or three points. And, you know, uh, monsters can be rated different things. The end result is the minute I draw a card that takes me over my number, that's the last card I get. So it's a really simple system. It, it, something like that doesn't, doesn't require much upkeep. You know, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with these guys. You're dealing with those guys, you know. Uh, you know, now you can throw in rules that, uh, you know, maybe we help each other to some extent. Uh, and score points accordingly, or or gain you know, or, or gain some kind of commitment from from the other player to help out. There's a lot of different ways that you can do it, but in the end, the AI acts the same way. What it really the the central piece, uh, at least from my approach to the AI, is it needs to be simple. It 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 needs to be something uh, if you're dealing with multiplayers to where it's evenly distributed between the players, but it's once again varied, so everybody doesn't feel like they're doing exactly the same thing. Uh, and, and it needs to have story. I, I can't stress that enough. Uh, games lose me when they don't have story. They drop, you know, if they have story and they have a lot of other flaws, then they probably still keep my attention. But I'm a rare, I, I'll say I may be rare as far as that's concerned. But uh, uh, I'm less enchanted by any, any kind of a mechanics than I am with, the fact that it's got story and it's smooth and easy, e easy to handle. I, to me, that's always kind of the most, some of the most important things. Like I believe mechanics should be, you know, uh, exist but not even be noticed. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, are there any things that you've tried as far as your in your AI systems that just didn't work? No matter how much you put into it, they just didn't feel right or create the experience. Uh, I'm sure. I, I'm, I'm sure if I was to go in and look at my shelf of unfit games, I've got a whole bunch of them in there that you know didn't work just right. But it, but once again, it probably wouldn't be the AI that didn't work right. The the game as a whole didn't work just right. Uh, you know, when when it doesn't work, it, it may or may not be the AI. It may be a whole lot of other things. The AI is, is one of the easiest things to to fix in a game because. Uh, if you're doing a design, because you can control the AI. What you can't control is how the players play the game. Okay, so it's actually easier if I get into a game and I notice the AI is not working right. It's much easier for me to fix that AI than it is for me to to fix how the players are playing the game. The the elements that the players are using are are much broader than 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 what the AI has. Yeah, it's a great point. It is easier to fix the AI than to fix a human being. That's, I think, something you run into no matter what game you're trying to work on. I remember I was working on one design. It was published, but I can't remember which one it was now. And there was a, a number of dice that were being rolled at one point that, 
that generated stuff that was coming from the AI. And it, it was the game was not working. And I simply removed two of the dice right in the middle of the play test, and all of a sudden the game just started humming, okay? And uh, uh, I remember one of the players looked at him and said, how did you know to do that? I said, well, I'm not sure I really knew how to do it. it just, I just knew what was there wasn't working. And, you know, we made this one little shift, and now it works. Um, so, so I think the thing is, and I, I always urge, you know, young designers toward this, there's no such thing as a core mechanic in a game that you're designing. If it's not working, it's not a core mechanic. Always look at the game as a whole and say, what do I need to do to make this game deliver the experience that I want it to deliver? Yeah, that's a great point. Now, as we kind of wrap this up, do you have any general advice for somebody who's right now working on a game with an AI? Maybe they're struggling with it. Any kind of thing you could, you could say to encourage them or keep them, keep them fighting that fight? Well, the first of all, I'll say keep it simple. Yeah. Second thing I would say is, uh, you know, the, the harder I work, the better I get at it. And I think that's, that's just the key. Uh, if, if, if they, you know, if you, if you put in long hours and you work at something, uh, you will find that, uh, that, that it'll start working out that, that hard, it, it can't make up for hard work. No, that's a great point. I think it was Ray Lewis who said people who want to work hard, greatness will chase them. So I think that's, that's right on point. I, I, you know, I, I, I think it, I think it's essential. And, and, and the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, in business, we used to say that, uh, you know, great is the, uh, good is the enemy of great. And we used to yeah. say it in terms of, uh, don't just be good, but, but, but go ahead and try to be great. Okay. And, and, you know, what now I would say that we really need to kind of implement that into everybody who's, who's doing designs there you know i don't know the numbers i heard two thousand new games came out last year i heard it's going to be something like three thousand new games this year those are just huge numbers of games coming out on a monthly basis okay uh and you know what i tend to see in a lot of cases is there's a lot of good games there's some bad games there's a lot of good games uh and there's a few great games but but what i'm seeing on the average is that, that companies appear to be settling more and more to let's just put a game out there you know the, the market's buying and and a little more development and just one more stretch of that design might have taken that from good to great and I, I really think the designers myself included we have to push ourselves to design great games no that's that's an excellent point and you're right the, the sheer numbers is it's mind-boggling like, it's not even possible to play anywhere close to half of all the games that are that are coming out you you might play one percent of the games and still have played a lot of games and so if you're not doing anything to make a great game you're not going to stand out you're just going to get lost in the noise you'll get one maybe one print run and then you'll be forgotten yeah i i think there's a that that's obviously a piece of it and the other piece of it is you know with with the right marketing unfortunately a lot of okay and good games uh have great sales and that that entices some companies, I think, to, to you know, publish more of those because it's just a deck of cards. It doesn't have a lot of pieces or whatever the case is. Uh, you know, my encouragement to all designers is design the game you want to play. Design it. Make it great. Make it fit that experience. Then show it to a company. Uh, and I think that the end result will be that you'll have a great game.
Yeah, no, that's awesome advice. Well, Richard, really, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show uh, for the second time. We're going to head over to the bonus round. I'm going to ask Richard about uh, the themes that he really wants to see more of, some themes that he thinks are some cool ideas. He'd like to see some games with those themes. So if you want to check out all the bonus material, head over to BoardGameDesignLab.com. You can find all sorts of stuff over there. So, Richard, really appreciate you coming on the show, and, and have a good one. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?